Hi there, I'm Michelle Musi, the irreverent, feisty, but irresistible author of Love Capades. And I'm Sally Kaplan, Michelle's partner in crime as her editor and clever co-host on this audio adventure. Welcome everyone to the Love Capades podcast. Welcome to the second episode of the Love Capades podcast. The first show told the teenage tale of Bobby, Michelle's high school squeeze. There were also some hysterical girlfriend capers with forays onto the Stanford campus and some innocent fun in Laguna Beach. Now she moves into the college years. Let's see what happens next. So here we begin with a chapter called Koi Coed. My high school years were pretty idyllic in spite of my sexual walk on the wild side, or partially because of it. While my conduct may have been racy for the time, once I got to college, I retreated into a more prudish place. If I had to guess why, I'd say... Much of it was guilt for all that wanton behavior at a too young emotional age. However, part of that retreat was the culture's fault. I believe that prissy mores are a peculiarly Victorian take on sex, which we Americans unfortunately inherited from the English. I wasn't a teenager in Europe, but I can only imagine young French or Swedish girls didn't bear an internal scarlet letter when they strayed, or shall we say partook, during their adolescent years. And I definitely have heaps of empirical evidence during college that free love on the continent didn't carry a blanket of shame as it did on my home turf. For this exact reason, I knew many girls in the U.S. chose to remain virgins until marriage. I had lots of crushes during college, but no real boyfriends until I was a junior. One major infatuation was a certain right tackle on the football team. He had the most wonderful alliterative Irish name, but since I'm committed to protecting the not-so-innocent, I shan't share it. Well, not all of it anyway. Fergus was handsome and rugged with lots of appropriate muscles. He was tall with dark hair, blue eyes, and that alluring fair leprechaun complexion. My perfect type. To add to the mystique, he had a bit of a rascally reputation. Not with girls so much, but by taking part in fraternity escapades. He was a member of the frat house on campus, which housed most of the football team. We girls called it Mount Olympus, and we could see it from the back porch of the row house where I lived. One winter ski weekend, busloads of Stanford students, yes, I did make it after all, went up to Squaw Valley near Lake Tahoe. As I recall, skiing was not really the focus of the activities. Well, maybe for some, but not for me. It was that weekend that Mr. Iris Stood took notice of me. I thought I'd died and arrived in the promised land. At the first opry ski opportunity, Fergus started to chat me up in the bar. Since I'd watched him on the football field, he was number 75, I nearly swooned. Keep your cool, Michelle, I told myself. It was clear he wasn't into skiing any more than I was. Drinking was more his game. 
We talked late into that Friday night, and then, to my delight, he sought me out the next evening as well. By this time, I was more than ready for a little kissing action, at least. Sneaking off somewhere for more of a face-to-face would have been divine. But the BMOC was evidently too shy to make that happen. What a shame. Basically, I had to be satisfied with our conversations and leave my romantic yearnings in fantasy land. The biggest thrill, it turned out, was bragging about the events of the weekend with my roomies back on campus. I crave a stage, and I do love to tell stories, with as many embellishments as I can squeeze in. In this case, I had to call on my talent for spinning a yarn and my dramatic side to make the tale engaging. But I managed to captivate my audience, and then we all waited for a summons from Mount Olympus that never came. A missed opportunity that has remained an unfulfilled valentine in my heart. The only actual boyfriend I can recall during this period, apart from Bobby, who makes an appearance late in my senior year of college, is the one I had in Florence when I spent six months at Villa San Paolo, where Stanford's Italian campus was housed. What a rare and idyllic situation that turned out to be. About 90 students, approximately half guys and half gals, convened in a villa on the outskirts of Firenze to learn, love, and imbibe the culture of Italy. I recently attended a 50-year reunion of Gruppo Dodici, or Group 12, and it awakened those memories of the most impactful and intriguing time of my young life. Stanford in Italy sculpted me into a more dynamic person, less provincial, more open to discovery, and, wait for it, romance. You can imagine that with several dozen American co-eds in one spot, the Italian Papagalli showed up in droves. By the way, informal Italian Papagallo means parrot, but it's also slang for pick-up artists, those guys whose main reason for being is to pick up women, in particular young foreigners. So those Papagalli showed up in droves. They would hang out in the villa bar where we would go to buy refreshments and animal crackers. My roomie Liz and I would sit in our room gossiping and gulping down boxes of those at a time. Not all the Italian guys were Papagalli, which thankfully was the case with Roberto, my guy. I should say now that my communing with the locals probably wasn't the best strategy if I were interested in snagging a Stanford husband, which was society's expectation of me. Almost every other co-ed focused on those smart, handsome Stanford spouse candidates. And in fact, there were several marriages that came out of the group. Truth told, there is one particular fellow whom I have always regretted not showcasing more of my charms. One of those, what was I thinking situations. Jim sat next to me every day in our two-hour Italian class. We wrote notes back and forth, and he drew cartoons, mostly of Topolino or Mickey Mouse. To this day, we remain good friends. As I said, mine was never the path most women chose. No doubt that is the reason I was gallivanting with Roberto and not Jim. At the recent reunion, once again, I found myself sitting next to him, and this time I fessed up. 
Jim, I offered. You were the big fish who got away. Despite the fact his second wife was on his other side, he turned a bit pink and smiled sheepishly. I had a thing for you, too, he said. Alas, missed opportunities. As for Roberto, he was sweet and romantic, looking like a million other Italian men with dark hair and eyes and a medium stature. Oh, and he sported a thin mustache anchored by a strip of chin hair, which helped him to look debonair. He'd pick me up at the villa and whisk me up to Fiesole on his Vespa. One night we arrived to a full moon, illuminating the main piazza. Here he serenaded me by the fountain with love songs on his guitar. I mean, come on, how many girls of 20 have that memory? It was the same night that he pointed to the nunnery off the piazza and explained how the priests and nuns would get it on and what became of those babies. This grisly depiction was such a flagrant contrast to the innocence of our experience. My relationship with Roberto never reached the carnal phase, but rather remained virtuous. In my view, virtuous is such a stupid word to describe abstinence in the sex department. More of the Victorian Kool-Aid we've been fed. After returning home, I actually corresponded with Roberto, and a few years later, saw him again on a return visit. Still sweet, but whatever attraction there'd been was gone. Turns out my Italian exploits were yet to begin. And begin they did with gusto. So moving on to the next chapter, which is called Graduation with a Twist. Marching across the stage or across the vast lawn of Frost Amphitheater in Stanford's case, is supposed to be an exciting, joy-filled event. For me, it was a mixed bag. Of course, I was proud of my accomplishment and happy to fluff up my father's feathers as he had graduated from the same alma mater years before. But I graduated pregnant with Bobby's child. He'd completed his army stint and, predictably, had circled back to find me. And this time, fate caught up with us. The last weeks of my college career were spent figuring out how to have an abortion. Not easy to do in 1967, while keeping the situation secret from everyone around me. It was a nightmare. The shame and guilt of my high school days had now returned in an untimely and virulent form. My parents were off in Hawaii on a rare holiday. So the seed of my dismay was sown in their very bed, raising the guiltometer sky high. I am glad to say that mom and dad never found out about my pregnancy. In the 60s, it was complicated to have a legal abortion, and I wasn't about to skulk off to a back alley in Tijuana. You had to consult with two psychiatrists and get their approval to have the procedure. I'll never forget the day I told Bobby of our situation. We were on the wraparound front porch of the former sorority house where I lived. By the way, Stanford had eliminated sororities after one co-ed committed suicide because she hadn't been offered a pledge invitation. So we were on this porch where I lived, and my mouth was frozen with fear. 
Finally, finding the courage to blurt it out, Bobby's response was outrageous. He said, well, you could have been one of five girls this month. Let that sink in. He was supposed to be in love with me, want to marry me, care about me. I've always wished that I'd slapped him hard across the bow for that affront. He deserved it. I invariably try to figure out the psychological reasons people do what they do. Why didn't he take me in his arms and find a way to comfort me? Why did he behave like the ultimate prick? Maybe deep down he felt I'd chosen Stanford over him. I can't fully explain his behavior, and to this day I can barely forgive him, even though I know that forgiveness is a salve for one's own soul. Forgiveness, however, is a damned hard quality to master. But I digress. I visited the Campus Health Center to begin the steps to arrange an abortion. Finally, things were in order, and I had organized to go to the Stanford Hospital for the sad deed. But not before I had to march bravely up to receive my diploma in front of what felt like the whole world. I was sure everyone must know my secret that there was a neon sign blinking on my back that said, pregnant. I told my parents that I was going up to the Stanford camp at Fallen Leaf with girlfriends for a week or so to give myself some cover. In actuality, I had only told one girlfriend of the predicament, not my roommate or anyone truly close to me. Then I checked myself into the hospital. I recall every unpleasant detail of that overnight stay. I felt so alone, so despondent. Women have abortions all the time, but the timing of this one was particularly poignant. The convoluted karma of my relationship with Bobby spans a lot of cosmic years, and to this day is still not resolved. Just this very week as I write this, we had an intense email conversation on the very subject of those painful emotional days five decades ago. As I told Bobby in my email, an abortion never leaves a woman's psyche. You continue to wonder what gender the baby was and what kind of person he or she would have grown up to be. Maybe those answers will come in the afterlife. The next chapter is called Moving On. After graduation, I took an eight-month job at Pacific Telephone in their management training program to earn enough money so I could return to Italy for another extended stay. I lived at home and commuted to San Francisco by train. Every penny went into my Italy fund. Marlo, a lifelong friend, agreed to accompany me to Italy. She and I had gone to Hawaii for two weeks as a gift after high school graduation, and here we were five years later embarking on a much bigger holiday. Her car-loving father offered to buy her a Porsche so we would have wheels, very spiffy ones, for our travels. In the spring of 1968, off we flew on Icelandic Airlines for our European spree. That was the airline of choice in those days. $400 round trip with the layover in Reykjavik. Such a deal. Our first stop was Stuttgart to pick up the car. Then we drove down to Fribourg in Switzerland to visit my mother's relatives. 
We American girls with our fancy auto became quite the sensation with the French-speaking Freeboard gang. My cousin introduced us to the Daguet family because they had children about our age, as well as their racy uncle, Danny Lowe, who was a car aficionado. He was considerably older than I, a small man with a big personality and twinkling eyes. He sported a Simon Legree mustache, which framed his big smile. Marlo caught the eye of the Daguet son, a medical student, while I became Danny Lowe's fixation. He even let me drive his Ferrari, which I was told he never allowed, and he also introduced us to some of the race car drivers in his circle. Marlo and I lingered in Switzerland and enjoyed a rousing start to our adventures. My mother's cousin, Bud Moulton, and his comely younger Swiss wife, Jacqueline, graciously invited us to many lunches and dinners at their lovely apartment. It was Bud's father, Ferris, by the way, who had the box seats at Candlestick Park. Breakfast often found us around the Daguet dining table, where they used a big serrated knife to cut the fresh loaf of bread fetched daily into thick slices for toast. Many nights, we caused a stir at local discotheques with Gerard, the son, and his posse of young medical students. Innocent fun with an international flair. But eventually, the two of us headed south to Italy, which had been my heart destination from the start. And here is where fate put me on the path to one of my most endearing love capades. Marlowe and I meandered in a leisurely zigzag through the scenic Alps, eventually making stops in Bellagio and Milano before landing in Firenze. Once there, we found a cozy family-owned pensione on a quiet street which became our home away from home for several weeks. Our daily routine was ridiculously indulgent. We'd sleep in, and after we'd browse, the late house ladies would bring us a breakfast tray with panini and hot chocolate. My taste buds still recall that frothy, warm beverage and the crunchy panini slathered with butter and marmalade. Marlowe invariably took way too long to put on her makeup, and my patience nearly snapped every morning. Patience has never been one of my virtues. Finally, I would be able to coax her to head out for our oh-so-important activities of the day. First stop was the American Express office on the Via Dante Alighieri to pick up our mail. In the 60s and beyond, this was a de rigueur ritual for all Americans traveling overseas. We'd sit at an alfresco table at a nearby bar to order Cokes and read our letters. We'd always have to ask for ice, con ghiaccio per favore, because the Europeans don't cool their beverages with ice. After this, we'd often amble down the way to Via Tornaboni or the Ponte Vecchio to shop. For some silly reason, our item of choice on the famous bridge was leather gloves rather than all that glittering gold we could have bought for pennies. How many gloves does a girl need? Then a proper young lady needed a few, but today it's down to zero. Sometimes we'd visit a museum or a church, but that wasn't our first choice. As I'd lived there before, I became the guide to restaurants, markets, and the ever-popular ice cream parlors. Italian gelato, as most everyone knows, is scrumptious. Our favorite go-to gelateria was called perché no, which means why not? <laughs> 
a question we tried to answer over and over. One day, shortly after our arrival, during our shopping rounds, we were approached by two good-looking Italian guys in stylish brown military uniforms. One of them was a surprisingly tall, slender young man with regal bearing. He cut a fine figure with his stature, his uniform, and his sunglasses. He looked like a movie star playing the role of a soldier. The two invited us to join them for a drink at one of the ubiquitous bars. Once seated, the Marcello Mastroianni clone focused his attention fully on blonde me, not my brunette girlfriend. Luckily, I was able to communicate in my Stanford-learned Italian. Turns out these friends were doing a two-month stint in the army at the Caserma there in town. When I learned that they hailed from Palermo, my inner alarms went off. I'd bought the bias that Sicilians were trouble, both from Livy and the rarefied Florentine era, and also from my father, who'd been a pilot in World War II. He'd had some harrowing experiences in Sicily, stories I'd heard many times. One such horror tale he told was how the mafiosi would string piano wire across the roadways so when the American GIs drove by in their jeeps, they would be decapitated. I learned, however, that Nicola was an MD and resident in surgery back home in Palermo. That modulated my fears somewhat, but not enough to say yes to his invitation to join him for dinner. For all I knew, his family was in the Cosa Nostra. My bias was going bonkers by this time. I don't remember how he squeezed out of me how to be in touch, but somehow he did. So for a number of days, Marlo and I would get back to the pensione to find messages, many messages from the aspiring surgeon. The breakfast tray ladies finally convinced me to return his call. He promptly invited me to have dinner with him in Fiesole, remember of Roberto fame? That very night, I was as nervous as a Ferrari driver with a cop on his tail. After all that angst, the date turned out to be amazing, enough so that I never said no to Nicola again. He knew just how to woo me. I've always been susceptible to the caveman drag you to their cave approach. For me, there is a powerful allure to men who know what they want and are sure they will get it. He made me feel that I was the special on the menu that night. Also on the menu was the famous Bisteca alla Fiorentina, a delicious grilled T-bone steak prepared with sage, rosemary, and olive oil. Considered the ultimate in Florentine cuisine, it was the first time I had tasted it. I love good food, and it was to become a delicious part of our romance. Once I'd succumbed to Nicholas' charms, we fell into a pattern for the rest of his deployment. Every night, he and Antonia would pick us up, and we four would dine out. And every night, I would drink about a liter of red wine. We all marveled how, with all that vino, somehow I never got inebriated. Each time I'd order a different pasta, tagliatelle alla bolognese, capellini alla pomodoro, cacio e pepe, penne alla vodka, 
orecchiette con pesto, lasagna, ravioli, fettuccine alfredo. A different shape, a different sauce, a different delight every night. I've often said one could enjoy a different pasta dish every day of the year. Finally, we'd all drive together to the Cascine, which is a large park on the north side of the Arno River. Here, Nicola and I would delight in passionate makeout sessions while Antonio and Marlo cooled their jets. The two of them would wander around the park, dictionary in hand, as neither spoke the other's language. It was a pretty wacko arrangement. So here, I'll stop mid-chapter. You'll have to wait until the next episode to find out what happens next with Nicola and me. Stay tuned. Michelle, no pun intended, but that was delicious. <laughs> oh my God. Ooh la la. Love it. Love, love, love it. <laughs> but let's let's go back to the beginning of the episode segment, if that's okay, because I have a couple questions. You ready? I'm ready, baby. All right. So you started off, if I'm remembering correctly, with you had been walking on the wild side a lot in high school. And that's what we got in our first episode. But when you got to Stanford in college time, you really didn't hook up with anybody, you know, in a real love affair until your junior year. So explain that a little bit. What was going on? What residuals were going on from high school that led you to that kind of more prudish behavior in college? Well, I think that I always felt guilty and full of shame about my sexual exploits in high school. So when I got to college, I kind of retreated back to the more normal place of behaving yourself sexually. And not only was that the cultural moray, but my mother, bless her beautiful heart, was kind of a prude. And so she had stamped that on top of me. So not only did I have the culture pushing me, but I had my mother and her attitudes, her Victorian attitudes. So when I got to college, I took a breather and behaved myself. At least I thought that's what I was doing. <laughs> so I didn't dabble as much as I had in high school. Does that explain it? It does. You also go on to say that the other girls or young women in college your age were really kind of looking for marriage and children and were set up to look for a good Stanford guy. That was the expectation. But you also shared in the previous episode that that wasn't necessarily the expectation for you, at least from your dad's side. So just talk a little bit more about that tear inside you, the Stanford guy, or what was delicious to come? Well, as I explained partially in the prior episode, my father did not raise me in the traditional manner to grow up and get a husband and have a family. He just didn't go there. And I was very influenced by my father. He was smart, charismatic, funny. And it, frankly, I was had a, a lot of his personality traits. So I related to him. And his intention was to raise me as a strong woman, person actually, to be successful in the business world. So I followed that program rather than everybody else's program, which was to grow up and get married and have a family. So I just 
you know, that's that's the way I was programmed. And frankly, just let me let me say this. Frankly, I also didn't want to be like my mother in the sense that my mother had to kowtow to my father. And I always thought that was extremely irritating. It's like, I'm not doing that. So it was easy for me to follow along my father's idea of be successful in the world. And again, it was so way ahead of women's liberation. My father didn't know anything about that, of course, and I didn't either, but that's the way I was raised. But can I press back a little bit to something that you're saying? Sure. So you, in this episode, talk about the Stanford guy that got away. And so clearly there was a part of you that, looking back, wonders if maybe with regret you should have nabbed him. So so talk about that a little. Well, you're so right. <laughs> Jim Marler, Mr. Topolino, who sat next to me in Italian class day after day, was the perfect guy. He was one of the most amazing men or persons I've ever known. And here I was sitting literally almost in his lap every day. And I could have been turning my attention to Jim, who later turned out to be a very successful attorney in Phoenix. And he was later made a federal judge. The guy was beloved by everybody who ever knew him. And yet I was hanky-panking, well, I was hanging out with Roberto. And I have always wondered what the hell I was thinking. So there is this dichotomy in me. Yes, I wanted to pursue the adventure of Roberto, but to this day, as I said to him at the reunion, you're the big fish who got away. Going back in time, here's Jim, and here's Roberto, and you, at the time, and maybe if you went back in time, would do the same thing, chose Roberto. So what was it about him that made him more attractive at the time than Jim? Was he a bad boy? What was it? Here I was in Italy, and I was given the opportunity to break out of that prudish attitude, those Victorian mores that I had absorbed. And I, the world was at my feet. I could do anything I wanted. Nobody was watching over my shoulder, literally or emotionally. And I wanted to explore. I wanted to see what it was like to be with an Italian man. And here he was presenting himself to me. So I thought, what the hell? And off I go on a Vespa to Fiesole where he serenaded me under the moonlight. I mean, <laughs> you know, what's, what's so bad about that? I'm nothing at all. <laughs> but I have to tell you an interesting little aside about on this very subject. So all the other girls in my group, and there were 45 of them, were focusing on the Stanford guys. Not one of them was off with the attendance like I was. And fast forward many years later, I was on a Stanford travel trip back to Florence. And in the group was Robin Kennedy, who at the time was married to the president of Stanford University. And she had been in my group. And she came up to me on this trip and she looked at me and said, Michelle, I want you to know I have always admired you. I said, here she's married to this president of Stanford and she's admiring me. 
I said, well, what do you mean, Robin? She said, because when you were back at Stanford in Italy, you were the only one that was taking full advantage of that opportunity (laughs) and dating the Italian men. So I'm going to go back in time a little bit to the segment that you just read us. And it's it's a very sad moment in the segment that reverberates its sadness to me still. And that is what you had to go through in such a lonely way around this abortion and the timing of it. So if you could take us to the mores of the time a little bit, or mores if I'm pronouncing it incorrectly, around the idea of abortion and just walk us through that a little bit and and what you went through. Well, in my day, (laughs) unlike today, it was just mortifying if you were pregnant. And so you didn't want anybody to know about it. And in high school, those poor girls who got pregnant were shipped off to Timbuktu to have the child, and then they had to come back and face their lives. So here I am, pregnant upon graduation, and it was the same thing. I was so full of shame. I was so humiliated and terrified because having a child at that point would certainly interfere with my life plans. And in 1967, it was very difficult to get an abortion. So I was presented with having to navigate that after Bobby had been so brutally cruel to me when I told him what was going on. I had to navigate getting the abortion, and I didn't want anybody to know about it. But did you have any second thoughts beforehand? I mean, was abortion the option for you? Did you ever consider having the child? No, frankly, that was just not what I was going to do. I never thought about that. So anyway, it was a very lonely time because I couldn't elicit any support from people close to me. I couldn't tell my parents. Obviously, Bobby was a schmuck (laughs) about it. I couldn't tell my roommate. My Anyway, so I was alone in this, and it was hard to execute. But of course, as I said in, in the chapter, a woman never, ever forgets or recovers from having an abortion. So of course, I later wondered what it would have been like to have that child, but it was not something I considered at the time. From the first episode, Bobby and your description of him in high school, he came off to me as such a match. So I was really surprised by his reaction. And what do you think was going on with him? Well, as I speculated in the chapter, I've never totally understood that. Because at the time and in high school and for many decades afterwards, actually, which will be revealed as we go on in the book, he always maintained that he loved me. So for him to have said something so cruel was mystifying, let me just put it that way. And as I speculated in the chapter, I think part psychologically, part of it was that I had chosen Stanford over him, and he was. this was a way of his getting back at me. But I'll never know why he said that. Right. And the wound... I can even hear in your voice now that the wound is still very raw, doesn't really go away. So it seems to me, 
and tell me if this is correct for you or not, that going to Italy had almost a healing effect on you from all this sadness and, and loneliness. And it, it's like you began a love affair with a place, Italy, of course, the men in it <laughs> as well. But Italy is a place. It seems like you entered in this chapter and this part of the read a true love affair. So tell me a little bit about that. It's true. I adore Italy. I love the culture, the people, the places, the food. <laughs> I love the art. Uh, but there's every aspect of Italy is something that resonates with me. And I think also it was the place where I became liberated as a woman. And it allowed me to be who I was. In fact, I have to say that I, and it will be revealed as the book goes on, I lived in Italy several times. And every time I was there, I felt totally, totally free to be me. And then after a period of time, I would say to myself, okay, Michelle, you have to go home now and be as happy there as you are here. <laughs> and I'm not sure that I ever achieved that. Well, back to some of the juicy morsels of your time in Italy then. Two things. One is Nicola stands out to me almost more so than Roberto. And I know he had an allure. I think you mentioned it as the caveman effect. I'd like you to tell me a little bit more about that. And I'd also like you to tell me more about food and your discovery of food and your enjoyment of food, because your descriptions of food in this segment are like it's yesterday. I mean, I can taste it. I can see it. Each and every part you remember so intensely. Talk about that a little bit. Well, I love food. <laughs> and I came, I came from a family where food was a big deal. My father's father had been a classically trained French chef. And my father inherited his ability to cook great food just naturally. My mother had to learn how to become a good cook or she would have been divorced by my father. So <laughs> she learned how to follow recipes. And so I had these two, you know, parents who were great with food. And food was a big deal in our family. And in fact, we used to fight, Vic Victor, my brother and I used to fight over portions of food at the dinner table. And I later realized that's because it represented love. So for me, not only is food delicious and sensual and wonderful, but it represents love. Nowhere other than Italy does it so represent love, right? <laughs> There's a triple whammy of love in Italy. <laughs> yeah, but tell me more about Nicola and his, his allure over you. Well, first of all, he was gorgeous and tall and handsome and wearing a uniform. And how <laughs> sexy is a man in a uniform? And those freaking sunglasses that made him look like a movie star. <laughs> and he and his friend Antonio, who, by the way, was going to shorten frumpy. Um, the contrast was hysterical. So they got us to sit down and have a drink with them. And then Nicola, he absolutely had decided that he had to have me. And he kept calling and calling and calling, and I wasn't having any of it for the reasons I mentioned already. Remind us, why not? 
Well, the reason I wasn't having any of it is because he was Sicilian. And I had, you know, the the Florentine snobby bias. Plus, my father had been a pilot in the war and spent time in Sicily. And there were terrible shenanigans going on. So he had told me these stories over and over. And I, so I wasn't having anything to do with his Sicilian, no matter how handsome he was. But finally, those adorable ladies at the pensione said, just call him back. <laughs> Always wanting a good love story, right? <laughs> I mean, that was that. I, I, as I said, I went to dinner with him in Fiesole and had that gorgeous, thick bisticca alla Fiorentina. And he just, he did it. He just, that was it. I was a goner. I think in the in the segment that you read, you called it the caveman effect. What's the caveman effect? Well, he wasn't taking no for an answer. <laughs> Which, as we know, that's your, you love that. <laughs> as strong a woman as I am, and I'm very capable of saying no to whatever, I just, that overwhelms me. That That overrides my reluctance. So when, some, when a man is that determined, because he really, really, really wants me, I succumb. <laughs> the cancer moon in me comes out and I succumb. So something else I want to circle back to, and, and this might even be what we're going to close the segment with, if that's okay, is you talk about always craving the stage, that you always love to be the center of attention. And when I look back at the feeling of listening to you read this, it's like the ups and the downs and the agony and the ecstasy. <laughs> and you're so <laughs> dramatic. And, and, and why did you never go on the stage? I mean, so anyway, I just really enjoyed your, your, your love for drama. Is it fair to say that you just crave drama? Well, I would say I'm, yes, I'm, I'm <laughs> dramatic and I'm a center stage player. And I remember before I became a realtor in life, I was a high school teacher, English teacher. And one time the drama teacher at the school asked me to help her with auditions for a play they were doing. And I was reading stuff or whatever I was doing. And she looked at me, she said, you should be an actress. <laughs> well, I, I was too busy doing other things. I just didn't pursue that. But Again, it comes out in my storytelling and how I like to captivate an audience still to this day. Yeah. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad it made you giggle because you certainly have the, the flair for the dramatic in life, you know, shying away from the norm. And I can't wait to hear more of that. <laughs> well, stay tuned. Thank you for listening to the Love Capades podcast. If you'd like to submit questions, please send them to michelle at lovecapades.com. And that's spelled M-I-C-H-E-L-E at L-O-V-E-C-A-P-A-D-E-S dot com. Also check out our Facebook page and website, both called Love Capades, for fun facts and groovy visual stuff. I am the author, Michelle Musi, and my co-host is Sally Kaplan. The Love Capades podcast is skillfully and playfully produced by Studio Pod Media. 
You can find them at studiopodsf.com. <laughs>